Well, hello and welcome to the Tim Masso podcast. Today we have a special guest from the Waiting List podcast. This is Daniel Sum. Daniel, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tim. It's an honor to be speaking to you. You know, after seeing your videos religiously for years, it's great to meet the man himself. Yeah, well, it's great to make your virtual acquaintance. And I want to walk <laughs> straight into this because we were just riffing on perpetual calendar chronos. You're looking at 3970s and 5970s. Tell me what you think on balance would be your preference. And then let me know why haven't you considered the 5270? Well, I have to be honest, right? I actually wanted the, I actually started off thinking 5970 and I was trying to make myself like the 5270 because it's a hell of a lot cheaper, right? So I'm talking to myself, in-house chrono, uh, in-house movement, first one from Patek in that kind of perpetual chrono collection. You know, is this what I want? You know, I think it's it's highly investable being the first one. But then, you know, you just can't make yourself love a watch, you know, if you don't feel it. And and the the sunken subdials, when you compare it to the La Magna movement, it just doesn't look as good, right? It's, you don't get that symmetry there. Then they kind of, if in my honest opinion, they messed up a few of those those configurations with the chin. Yeah. Uh, at six yeah. o'clock. If you see it, you'll never unsee it, which means that really you're reserved to the first one, which doesn't have a tachymeter. And then the others, which, mm, but then it's also a larger case size. So I have a small Asian wrist and I've tried it on. And we uh, most people will love that watch, but you've got to be realistic as well. Does it actually fit my wrist? You can you can have a watch and put it in the safe and admire it like that. That's not how I like to collect. I like to wear the pieces. So if I don't think I can wear it, I, I feel why am I buying it? So then I then I kind of stuck with the fifty nine seventy, tried that on, but then everybody around me has kind of got the thirty nine seventy. So I've had the uh, opportunity to try that on, and I probably have to admit that it does fit my wrist better than the 5970. Uh, so over time, I've shifted from the 5970 to the 3970, but I'm wondering if it will stay. So if it does, then I'll probably purchase that watch. But I then have to decide which configuration do I want, right? The challenges here are obviously sizing and availability, and they're I mean, it's such a premium on 5970 supply. Any given model is going to be even scarcer. And when you're looking at some of the some of the rare ones like platinum or yellow gold, um, it's really mm -hmm. a seller's market. So you almost get pushed in the direction of the one you don't want, something along the lines of rose gold or white gold. Uh, but I think there's better selection among 3970s because frankly, there's just more of them and they built them longer. Yeah, but you also made a really good point um, in my last conversation with you, because I did ask you a specific question because I, it did factor in my decision-making process, which was how did you rate the first thing I said, which was Patek 5270 in-house movement compared to La Magna-based movements all the way through. And then you said pretty like quickly, I'd go La Magna all the time, you know, because they're never going to be made again. Right. And that in-house movement for the 5270 was designed to, to be used thoroughly as time goes by. So in the long term, you feel that La Magna with the with the fact that, to be honest, a lot of the pieces, once they get bought, they never resurface. You know, the, the watch will become rarer and rarer 
that value of the, having that La Magna, which is a fantastic movement used in the Omegas as well, you know, um, will actually then supersede the, well, be better, well, not better, just probably more investable, more desirable than the uh, in-house. That's what you said, right? Uh, yeah, I, I think for me, it's always be a matter of scarcity. And given that both of these things are beautifully made, Patek hugely remodels the, you know, the Lamagna 2310 Bausch. It's yes. unrecognizable except for its basic architecture once it goes in a Patek watch. So it's not like you're getting some off-the-shelf Lamagna movement that you can find in a pre-moon or mega. You're getting something that's very bespoke, uh, very special. And in my opinion, because they are not making any more of them, and back in the day, they made few of them per year than they make of, you know, caliber 29.535 today. Even in its day, it wasn't being made at the rate that their in-house caliber is being made now. Um, I would also say, frankly, there's a better match between case size and movement size with the 3970, as all sorts of dial tricks get played on, for example, the 5970 and the, the 5070 to make the movement look like it fits the case. So I think the 3970 mm. is... Yeah. These two things are native to each other. Movement yeah, you're right there. Because it's the same movement in the 5970, but because it's a larger watch, you've got, well, basically spacing, right? <laughs> Between exactly. the movement and the case. I'll also say this. Uh, something else you consider should consider, rather, is the Vacheron Constantin. It is the 47112. And the watch is a Hunter case back, uh, Lamagna powered manual wind chronograph. It's got the malt style lugs and it's beautifully made at 39 millimeters. And this is a timepiece that you hardly ever see. It's got a wonderful presence. It's between the sizes of like the 5970 and the 3970. And the fact is, you, you, I just feel like you get more. You get a remarkably distinctive case design with those malt style lugs. You get the Hunter case back. So it's like the best of both worlds. You can see the movement, but you also get the solid gold or the platinum on the reverse side. I definitely consider that to be something, you know, that would be in the same class. It's really in the same echelon of watch, maybe not as an investment, but that means you're going to pay less for it. Technically yeah. and aesthetically, it's definitely in the same class. And I'd consider that as like an alternative. Yeah, I'll, I'll get that reference again off you when after the podcast and I'll research that. I'm definitely thinking a lot of Vacheron actually though, Tim, because, you know, we're in a world of like when in watches, a lot of hype on it with uh, and a lot of, um, when I say hype, I don't just mean pricing, I mean, hype beast mentality of i got this piece you don't have this piece right yeah. and a lot of those pieces like rms ap's patek to some extent the reason why i'm pushed towards vintage is because i almost don't want to be part of that um but if you get a vacheron you can be guaranteed you're not part of that right and they are great movements if you were a vacheron I, I would say in the gatherings we have you're never going to meet a person with the same watch as you right and it's almost like a statement it's a unique thing Vacheron, the thing that everybody's been complaining about vacheron maybe it's going to be turning to their advantage soon oh it's hugely hugely first of all that that the 47112 the the malt perpetual calendar chronograph uh, that's a watch with the same lamagna based movement as the 5970 we're not even talking i, I mean it's not a sit down at all it's it's almost technically identical in most regards. There's a power reserve disparity, but other than that, the decoration is the same level, the mechanical base is the same, it feels the same, it looks the same. And with a Vacheron, you're gonna pay something approaching the correct value of the watch rather than paying, you know, 
25% the watch and then the remaining three quarters for the hype that's caused by social media. If you think about it, there are so few actual models being hyped compared to how many models have been made. Think about every watch ever made by Ulysse Nordin, Gerard Perregaux, Gégère Lecoultre, La Souta Original, and literally every single one of them is available, depreciated right now. It's a few steel Rolex, it's a, few, it's a few Patek sports watches, it's a few Royal Oaks, and then it's an occasional <laughs> independent brand watch like a Chronomet Bleu. I mean, it's really a very small circle. There have been tens of thousands of models from hundreds of brands that we never discuss in mainstream social media. Yeah. Do you think, though, that shows that the market actually cares more about the brand and doesn't really understand or even look at, consider the movement? Maybe they consider, in terms, you know, I'm, I hope I'm not offending anybody, but as long as it's got a glass case back and I can see a movement that looks kind, I don't really know what's going on there, but it kind of looks beautiful. That's enough. You know, I wish I could say that in every case we had a case back that revealed a beautiful movement, but for years there's been debate over whether or not an ugly movement should have a sapphire case back and it sort of came to a head this year with the Tudor Black Base and suddenly they have a display case back over a movement that's technically competent, but but not, <laughs> not good to look at. Like I'd rather have a cool design on the case back, but yeah. I, more to what you're saying right there, I think if a watch is hyped, it doesn't matter what movement it has. I believe most people have no idea what's inside their Rolex and there's no display case back there. I would even go so far as to say brands are not king on social media, models are king. Because if you look at Rolex, it's very easy to find Rolex watches. Forget Cellini, those have always struggled. But even steel sports watches that are not hyped, not weightlisted, not marked up when used. I mean, the Air King, the Yacht Master 2, even the Milgauss, these are you know, substantial sports watches from Rolex. And you can go out and buy them used for less than their retail or almost identical to their retail. You can go out and buy a Yacht Master, a standard 40 millimeter steel platinum Yacht Master used for the same price it sells for new. And if you go into your Rolex dealer, you're gonna be able to buy one with very little, if any weight at the most, it's gonna be the time it takes them to order and take delivery if they don't have it in stock. So even Rolex is not omnipotent. And I think just the fact that there are Rolex watches available on demand or not marked up proves that it's really the model. It's the GMT, it's the Daytona, it's the sub. It's the Aquanaut, it's the Nautilus. It's the Royal Oak and Royal Oak Jumbo. It's the Chronomet Bleu, because you can go out right now and buy an Octoloon or an Octa Divine from F. Pigeon and get it marked down on the aftermarket or take immediate delivery from the boutique. There's no wait list for that model. Mm. Makes you think though, then what actually hypes up those pieces? Because for me, just, I can't really see the attractiveness of uh, Aquanaut. Right? You know, I'm not into it either. To me, it was a 90s creation designed to have basically appeal to younger people with less money. And the idea was, well, instead of a bracelet, we'll give them a strap. And instead of a complicated case, we'll have a relatively simplified case that's easy to make. 
And the problem today now is that everyone wants that too, because if they can't get the Nautilus, they want the other Steel Protect sports watch. And for me, it really is about social media fixating on models. People who call themselves influencers, people who are the loudest voices in the room, who have the biggest platform. Because if you go and you tag like a Patek Philippe, you're going to get a million suggestions like Patek Nautilus, Patek 5711, yeah. Nautilus 5711. Go ahead and post a gondolo and see how many tags there are for gondolo on Instagram. It's nothing. Yeah, I think I was speaking to an influencer and he was saying it's self-perpetuating because they have to produce content that is being highly searched, which is generally the hot models, right? So it's just a, a constant loop that's happening. And then pieces that, well, I'm actually kind of glad that they're not exposed because then people that do spend the time researching the pieces actually do get the rewards. You know, they do find these, uh, these, these models that, you know, if you go beyond that circle that you're talking about, I think there's plenty of watches for you, for you to look at. I mean, personally, I've just been looking at recently the, the non-Royal Oak shaped AP perpetuals, you know, that have come in quite a variety, very oh, yeah. uh, rare, but beautiful watches. Yeah, like the Jules Audemars perpetual calendars, you can get limited yeah. blue dial, full platinum, the same movement that's in the jumbo yeah. module yeah. that's in the Royal Oak perpetual, and yeah. you're going to pay a third of the price. I mean, yes. make a quarter of the price yes. of a full-blown Royal Oak perpetual. Yes. And I would say more kudos because you're wearing an AP that is in the Royal Oak shape. And I'll also add, for me, the Royal Oak, the design of the Royal Oak, you know, it goes without saying, I think it's a genius design. The fact that it incorporates bracelet, the whole wrist, everything, beautiful design, but it is the design. Yes. And I don't think you need 10 of them to appreciate that design because it is essentially the same watch with a change of like dial. But everybody will say, yeah, but you could say that about the same as a, a circular watch. Well, actually, it's not quite the same because, the, you know, we're talking about difference in uh, stepped, finishing on the side, thickness. It, it's not. And with the Royal Oak being such an icon in design, that's all you really see, right? When you see that watch, it's oh, not yeah. the same comparison when you compare it to a, just a spherical watch or a, or a rectangular watch. Yeah, it's, it's a very influential and important design. And I think it's no coincidence that that was the first of the, the, the well-known Gerald Genta integrated bracelet watches of the 70s. It set the pace and, and sort of set the template for everything he did and everything everyone else did in that decade. I will say this, though. Oftentimes, it's described as the first Genta integrated bracelet watch of the 70s. I believe that the actual first integrated bracelet Genta watch of the 70s was the 1970 Rolex 5100, their, their Beta 21. So maybe that should be the watch we look back to because that came before the Royal Oak, which came before the Nautilus, which came before you know the 222, the 222, not Gentas, but very much in a mold with the Genta. Paradigm. I wish you would have told me that before you announced it on the podcast. <laughs> oh, I think that secret's out. I hope Everybody's I now going to look for that piece. But for me, I know everybody loves the Jumbo, the 15202. But if I was just having, and it's, I've had this conversation with a lot of collectors because it is the design of the case. And if you go quartz, it allows that watch to be thinner. Yes. And that beauty of that design is in its thinness. Personally, the reason why the 15202, in my opinion, looks better than the 15400, 15500 is because the glass is almost on the dial, right? The, I, I personally love that. I don't know what the reference number is, 
but maybe it's the one four seven nine zero. It's the tantalum, the rose yes. gold. Yes, yes, the mid-sized yeah. tantalum case. That's that's the one to own. If you're not going to own a thirty-nine millimeter right. roller, that is the yeah. one to own. Yeah, I, the other thing, uh, to be perfectly honest, the fixation on some of these watches, it actually it drowns out talk of horological interest because one thing you can't say about any of these watches the daytona the sub the gmt the aquanaut the 15202 the 15500 the nautilus none of them are technically innovative a lot of these designs are are time honored but beyond the designs enduring a lot of these models have seen very few upgrades in years or even decades the 15500 gets a new movement but the 15202 the only thing i can say about it is that they found ways to make it cheaper since 2000 first i I mean i'm not even kidding they found ways to make it cheaper first they got rid of the elaborate hand-finished hand-engraved rotor uh, for the movement in 2012. Yes. And then in 2017, they did away with the monoblock case of the, the jumbo to make it easier and quicker to manufacture. And, and that's probably the, the largest suite of changes we've seen because the 5711, the only change that made it better was the change two years ago to add a new hacking movement. But other than hacking, not much changed. And this is a model that's been in production since 2006. The Aquanaut 5167 has been around since 2007. And you know, we talk about the sub, the GMT, and the Daytona. The Daytona has gained all of a ceramic bezel since 2000. The subs got the same movement you see in every other Rolex automatic, and they added one millimeter to the size. And then the GMTs, again, they got the 70-hour movement, and, you know, a generation ago, they got ceramic bezels. Very few changes here. Nothing along the lines of, like, a harmonic oscillator or an ultra high frequency escapement or something outrageous like a double direct impulse escapement like you'll see in Jorn and Voudelain and Ferrier watches. There's just, there's nothing that would ever break the mold in terms of technology inside the watch. And in some cases, like with the 5711, you feel like this is a very old design that should be past its prime. Only people are paying more money than ever for it. They're paying for the image and the name. Yeah. because I know you're into cars, so I don't know what the progression is in terms of, because I would say the engine is the equivalent. I'm, I'm not a specialist in cars. I'm just going to put that out there. But, you know, the, the evolution of a car engine, because I would say that's the movement in the watch. And then obviously the aesthetics is what you see, right? Has the car engine evolved to a place? And is that, bec- and if it has, and that's getting appreciated, is it because the performance is more tangible than what you would feel in a wristwatch. I do think that there's something to be said for innovation in cars, although the Dodge Challenger would probably put paid to all those theories because it's been the same car since 2008. They just keep adding a bigger engine. I, I think when you, I talk about innovation in the automotive sphere, it's generally those, those cars that change the rules for their segments. I think a great example there would be the 1984 you know, unibody Jeep XJ Cherokee. All of a sudden you could drive a truck without two and a half tons and nine miles per gallon. Um, and that created the SUV. I think in 1990, the, the Honda NSX, if you were driving a Ferrari at the time, like a 328, you would drive the NSX and ask, it doesn't have to be uncomfortable. It doesn't have to be unreliable. It doesn't have to be impractical. I'm never driving a Ferrari again. I, I think there's less that's tangible about the engineering of a watch than in a car. I think in a car, you quickly note the differences. In a watch, 
if we're going to be honest with ourselves as guys who collect watches, we mostly buy the fashion and the style and everything else is a secondary consideration. You can give me the most advanced movement in the world, but if it looks like an Invicta, most guys are probably not going to choose it. So it is the style. It's very, I, I would say we have these mechanically operated bracelets that we call watches because they are very much articles of fashion first. I would. I listened to a talk by Thomas Parazzi, who's head of Watches Asia of uh, Philips, and he said something that really made me think. He said it could be quite possible that in 20 years' time, the wristwatch may be the only single fully mechanical item that a man could own. Yeah, I, I would and that say actually quite sounded quite romantic to me. You know, I thought, you know, we all hark back to that to that analog kind of era. And there is something romantic about that. And I think that would be rather special. Yeah, I agree. The steam train is gone. The internal combustion engine car is, you know, it's, they're going to have them as classic cars, but they won't be, they won't be making new ones. You know, nobody has hugely mechanical equipment around the house anymore, unless, unless you need it for construction or yard work. I mean, let's face it, we don't even have rotary phones anymore in most parts of the world. So yeah, definitely. In, in terms of getting its energy from a spring, driving through gears, and the, the Swiss lever escapement or some equivalent, yeah, everything else is going to be digitized in solid state except for the watch. I can see that. Yeah, so I think maybe that will increase the desirability amongst certain people, at least bring it to the attention of some people that are yearning for that outlet where they want to deep, uh, well, unplug themselves, so to speak. Absolutely. Now I got a question because we, we touched on cars. A few years ago, I went on a car forum and there was an interesting discussion. Someone had started a thread to the effect of what other passions do you have besides cars? And one person responded, um, cars are actually my second interest, second only to my uh, love for high-end mechanical watches. And that really surprised me to see that on a car forum. So let me ask, as a collector of watches, what else what else competes for your passions? And not like, you know, <laughs> not like I have a wife and kids. I mean, like silly things that are fun. What else do you enjoy? What competes for your mind share with watching? Uh, yeah. Do you know what? There isn't really. I would say in terms of my time, uh, if it's not on watches, I would say it's with my friends. Okay. And I think watches is, you know, we all, we all, see a watch that somebody's wearing and whether we judge or not judge, you'll have an impression of that. You're getting information about that person's taste. Right. And, you know, with watches, it's allowed me to meet a bunch of people that are very similar background, uh, similar tastes. And it's allowed me to forge these really, really special relationships. I just don't think because a lot of these friends are around dotted around the world. Right. And probably with the advent of uh, social media as well has made it more accessible to share this passion amongst people and then connect in a way that we in the way that you trust a person you really shouldn't trust. But uh, it somehow happens. And I would say when I'm not yeah, actively looking at watches, I'm talking about watches to my friends, normally over food. You know, I, I'm Chinese and food plays a, a big part of our culture. So I would quite happily fly to somewhere and just to have a meal with my friends and um, just catch up. So 
I feel this, yeah, second, like, well, I would say friendships, like, very important to me. So that's what I would say. Yeah. I also love reading as well, actually. So I do think that with watches, there is this part of the personality that is maybe slightly tuned in to being more introvert because you need some time to focus on the, the, the research without necessarily having to, you know, just by yourself, finding your own path, finding your own journey. We all talk about everybody's watch journey being, being quite individual and it's about finding that. And sometimes that does mean quiet time with the literature. So I do love reading, um, whether it's novels, uh, self-help, self-development books, and even watch books. I love finding out more stuff and going deeper in things. So I'd say those two things. Yeah. Well, I've got a lot going on too. And I would say uh, I'm sort of an introvert and I'm very private and quiet. And I think outside of my public life, people would be surprised at just how few ripples I make. Uh, illustration for me, I mean, there's a whippet yes. that dad used to own. This is something yeah. that occupies a great deal of my time, just trying to build another talent and build another focus. And, you know, something I can do for free compared to these incredibly expensive copies <laughs> I have. Um, that, but I have to say cars are huge for me. Uh, auto racing as a sport, uh, the collector car community, friends I have who are deeply into cars. And, you know, like like you, I, I, I probably find common cause with people who have similar interests more than anything else. Like, if I'm going to be drawn to interaction with people, you were talking about friends you you know who love food, who love watches, and you're drawn into those circles. Uh, cars sort of open up my social horizons, and even if I'm not a collector and I don't have the money to collect cars, uh, the car community for me has always been huge, and that spans everything from car shows to auto racing to maybe dreaming of that classic I'll someday add to my garage. Um, so, so those are huge for me, and I think it's always important to have some sort of outlet that draws you away from watches. So that when you come back to watches, you feel that hunger again and that joy of discovery. Because otherwise, you just burn out and you get cynical. I think you need yeah. to shift gears so you can shift back later. I would hundred percent agree with that. You're probably someone as well that it has. Well, you actually feel and touch watches on a regular basis. You are in danger of, like you said, getting burned out and also just becoming numb to the pieces. And you know, I'm a co-founder of Shanghai Watch Gang. And one thing that I'll never miss is when, a, when somebody new comes into the group and they see like the Royal Oak Jumbo because someone's brought it and that glint in their eye just reminds me how I felt when I first saw this piece that I thought I would never see, right? Or never own or, or anything like that. And just to see them, you know, how they are so careful about fumbling with the watch. <laughs> I'm sure me and you don't do that anymore, right? You're just like, okay, let's just shoot this video, da, 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 done, right? Let's put it to the side now. But at the beginning, especially, okay, after that, you reach the independence. And you're like, whoa, you know, this is so rare. And then it's like, after you, you know, there's, a, there's this English phrase, you know, even the freshest fish become stale. Yes. You know? And it's the same with watches. And so your excitement on certain pieces, you're always looking to find where is that excitement coming from? And more so now, I'm finding it comes from the collectors I meet because these pieces are, you know, if you just left it on the side, it would be a watch. But if you put it with the right person, it has a story. And it's actually the stories that I love, whether it was the hunt for the watch or how this watch was meaningful to this person, um, what this person sees in this watch, all those stories make that piece actually unique. And that's different 
to, let's say, a 3970 that's owned by this person and a 3970 that's owned by another person. So I find those stories particularly engaging. And if I'm being honest, the stories were the first thing that grabbed me and pulled me into the world of watches. All that marketing stuff that the brands pushed out, I lapped that up and loved it. Yeah, absolutely. I totally get that. I think it's easy to get burned out on watches and cynical and a little bit jaded. And sometimes it helps to like go back to the joy of discovery. And I know a few months ago, I, I walked into the, the Torno, there was a Torno in Midtown Manhattan, and I hadn't been there since before I was in the watch industry. And when I walked in, all of a sudden I had that same like buzz that I used to get when I would take the train into New York, spend an hour on a train, just to be able to see a couple of used watches in a case and the thrill that gave me. And it's almost like I rediscovered the feeling I had before I was in watches and being in that place and that space brought it all flooding back to me. And I see you've got kind of the same thing going on with the collectors who, who surprise you with watches you don't expect and otherwise wouldn't have seen. And you feel that joy of discovery all over again. Yeah, I, your, your, your stories very like they resonate with me so much because it's so similar to me. I, back when I started getting into watches, I was actually in England still. And I used to go down to London just, and if you couldn't find me, there must've been a watch store right nearby because I would have disappeared from the main group. And I'd be just looking through the window or, you know, if I had the guts back then, I would have just walked in and just tried to find out more about the pieces. I went down to the Burlington Arcade to look at the, all the vintage pieces. I was just trying to get any exposure I could for watches. And, I, and I, at the time, I really didn't care what people thought. You know, it seems like as you go along the journey, maybe it matters to some people. But if I just go back, it was just so pure. Just, I love this piece. I want to know more about this. Why is this special? And then you're, you're, you have no appreciation really of balance of the dial of construction, um, the little subtleties, the details of a watch. It slowly, you know, through time, and it is different between like everybody because some people can pick it up really quickly. The appreciation of all those things coming together happens when you actually have more exposure on watches. You know, you feel them and you touch them and you realize, you know, I think something that you talk about in your video, you're very savvy on dimensions because, and if you see a lot of Instagram pictures, it's literally the pictures that do the best are the ones which are face on and you can't see anything else, which is the dial and you can't see any depth of the watch, right? And you have no idea on, okay, lug size, lug width, how that's going to sit on my wrist, um, the depth of the watch, all those ratios. We, everybody thinks that, oh, you know, they chuck, they go to a watch me and they chuck a 38 millimeter, oh, 38 millimeter fits me. Almost as if they know something about watches. You, you should be like thinking about the watch as a whole because the lugs completely change the size of the watch. The thickness, the dial, if it's a stepped, stepped case, it makes the dial looks, look uh, smaller. And what you said before, a black dial totally changes the, the, the appearance of a watch as well, right? It really does transform the timepiece. I've seen silver dials that look as generic as anything. You put a black dial or a dark blue dial on the watch, all of a sudden it draws this power and this presence that it didn't have before. And these are the kind of things I try to communicate in my reviews because the way it looks, the way it's shaped, the way it fits, and all of the dimensions, not just the diameter, uh, make it easier to pick a winner, especially since most of us, even in pre-pandemic times, 
we shop for watches and we do our research online. Like we're not going to the mm. library and the local watch store, even if you're in Hong Kong or a place that's mm. got great inventory, you're not going to see all the watches that are out there, particularly the newest watches. So going online, it's, it's a two-dimensional medium. And the, the more you can say about size and shape and fit, the better. So let me ask a question now, since we're well into the 2021 model year, uh, have you seen any watches lately that have impressed you, either new watches or wa older watches that you've only just encountered recently? Well, uh, exclusive to this year, this year's releases what you're talking about, right? You know, let's do favorite new watches. Then we'll talk about watches we've just seen recently. That, favorite you know, new watches. Do you know what, Tim? I'm actually struggling. <laughs> And I went to Watches and Wonders. Oh man, you got a leg up on me there. Okay, well, you know, not a problem. Well, if we go to the main brands first, so maybe there is something, but Rolex, if there was anything that was going to catch my attention, would be the new 36 millimeter Explorer One. Uh, I think that is targeted to probably the collectors, the smaller case size. Explorer One, in my opinion, has always been my most favorite. Uh, Rolex, uh, with the history of the watch, the simplicity of it, uh, how a lot of models spawn from that piece alone. Um, and I just love how discreet that that piece is. You know, you can wear that almost like an Air King. And, you know, it's nobody really takes a second look at it. But, you know, I'd argue which piece actually is as flexible as that piece in the Rolex, Rolex lineup, right? If you were to accessorize, I think it's far more uh, flexible than a Submariner. Um, so that piece may be, um, Patek, um, before the podcast, I told you, I wasn't really interested in like the, the sports models. So the new green, uh, Nautilus, um, doesn't really, uh, interest me. I couldn't get it anyway. So it's kind of a relevant talk unless I was to play top buck, which recently let's be honest, those high prices that we've been talking about has recently just gone in overdrive, right? Yeah. So very so nice. again, it's like, well, really, is it a buyer's market? I'm not sure it is. Uh, I'd rather wait until COVID's finished and see what happens. Um, you right. say something, Tim? No, no, no. I, I was just saying, you know, it, it's always like we've got a million watches in our mind. And I know there's probably like 15, 16 different cool watches you've liked this year. And it's like when we go on the spot, it's like being a guitarist and I play guitar and people ask me, OK, play a song. I'm like, I'm blanking. I don't know. <laughs> I know 15 songs, but I can't think of any of them right now. So, yeah, I mean, I think some of the fun stuff I've seen this year. First, I really liked I really liked the Grand Seiko White Birch, the SLGH005 with the White Birch dial and the new 80 hour. Oh, yeah. yeah. That yeah, I really good. loved. That's a nice uh, piece, yeah. Ariel Adams scored a big win. He worked with Zodiac to do a Super Seawolf Aquamarine Dream. It's a yeah. chronometer, it's 40 millimeters, it's steel, it's a diver. It comes with a strap and a bracelet and it, it's inspired by the aquamarine blues he saw on a vacation to Nassau. And I, I think it's 1,400 and I wanna say like $95, it's, it's all, or maybe it's 1,450, it's completely sold out. So it looked good and that guy's got an eye for design. He gave me a shirt with a watch on it, like a watch dial. And yeah. I've gotten more compliments on that shirt than any suit I've ever bought. Uh, other than that, a place where you could I could say a bit about your suits, though, Tim. <laughs> well, I, you know, I blame my tailor. 
I got, I got my Holland cycle shirt, other stuff I love, bikes. But, uh, you know, I really thought that the Ralph Lauren Automotive Chronograph 42 is probably going to be the watch nobody talks about at all this year uh, that had the most going for it. It's a joint venture with Richemont, so they get access to movements from the Richemont brands. So 42 millimeters in steel, it's got a preserved burl wood bezel that looks awesome, genuinely attractive case lines and dial, and then a JLC 751 chronograph movement in it. And I haven't heard a word about that watch. I have no idea at this point. Yeah, but you know why, though? Yeah, it's Ralph Lauren. Yeah, yeah, exactly, Tim, right. Yeah. <laughs> Cover the name. If, if that said Piaget on the dial, that would be Piaget's greatest hit ever. In terms of- <laughs> uh, so, yeah. uh, no, I think the reason why I haven't really paid a lot of attention to the modern watches is because my recent tastes haven't been to, towards the modern size, like to the modern pieces. It's more to, well, you could argue that the 3970 isn't a modern, uh, isn't uh, a vintage piece. But, you know, I have been looking at uh, pieces that aren't in the modern lineup. And I would say the whatever comes out modern has never really detracted from what I want to collect. I'm, I'm I'm not a spontaneous kind of buyer. So let's say um, somebody releases a piece uh, on their website and it's gone within like two minutes, well, you never have my business because you're asking me to make a decision on a watch within two minutes. Well, I can't make a decision like that and therefore it's not, I'm not going to do it. So in my, in my mind on what my wish list, yeah, has always been pieces that I want to own and then it hasn't really changed over time. And that's what would be one of the, determining factors of wanting to own a piece is the fact that it shouldn't change that's that's how i want to collect well, you are a vintage guy and i'm not really so i mean let's let's turn the tables here vintage isn't really on my radar and it's a big part of your fascination has it ever been only once there was a jlc from the early 70s the e877 snowdrop memovox that's the only vintage watch i ever wanted to own and i do own it it's also the only JLC I kept when I sold off my collection. So that means quite a bit to me. Um, unfortunately, I got it for like four grand because it's on nobody's radar. Uh, although in 2016, when JLC did the Memovox Boutique limited edition with the blue dial, they based it on the Snowdrop dial, but not the case. The case of the original is lugless. So let me know what vintage is on your radar and wh- what's probably the piece that's burning a hole in your mind most right now or a hole in your heart, perhaps. And a hole in your wallet eventually. Well, I kind of like a few pieces. Yeah. Go so for it. the 3970, I'd like a, a Reverso. I've already got, uh, this year I got into Reverso. So, you know, Reverso is one of those pieces that I think many listeners will agree. It's the price point of that. Everybody appreciates the beauty of that piece. It's kind of proven over time. But everybody thinks, okay, if I put that budget that I would allocate for Reverso onto more of a budget, I could afford something more expensive. And so I'll get the Reverso later. Yeah, I'll later, later, later. And I've been saying that for like at least over five years. Yeah, probably like a good seven, eight years. And I met a collector in Hong Kong um, that his favorite brand is JLC. And he collects a wide range, you know, the full full range, FB, Jean, Patek, Seiko, Grand Seiko, all of it. 
But first and foremost, what's in his heart is JLC. And he's someone that, um, as I mentioned before, you know, the collectors that collect these pieces mean a lot to me. Someone that I would actually aspire to be like, the way he handled himself. And I thought that energy then transmits to that watch, that brand. So I started paying a bit more attention. And you know what? I thought, I'm going to pick up a JLC, undervalued. So I picked up the GMT duo face in the classic shape um, with the uh, reverso on one dial and JLC on the, the other dial. But it does just say reverso on one of the dials. And it's uh, ultra thin, so it's thinner. And so that was my first. And I thought, yeah, this is um, the only one I'm going to get. But then I, my, my brother, he got the 1931 reissue, the black dial, uh, stainless steel, and it's thinner, right? Yes, and very thin yeah, it's a very thin watch to the point where he thinks it's pretty delicate. And I kind of thought, wow, do you know what? I compared it with mine and the whole elegance of a reverso is just elevated because it's thinner. And that piece is just amazing. So then I was like, okay, I'm going to look for some vintage ones. And then the vintage ones, you think, a lot of those dials are in very poor condition. Yes. Right. It's very hard to get one which is in, well, to be honest, if, if it looks new, it's probably touched. Um, and, and then I think, hmm, okay. Then I started looking at, I don't know if people know that, you know that black reverso 1931? There's actually another segment of that, which is the US edition, which is they made in initially 100 pieces, but because it was so in demand, they then made an additional 100 pieces. So I think it's a total of around 200 pieces. So I would say that's pretty exclusive. And it's different to my brother's one because the Reverso font is different. It's back to the original Reverso font and the hands are syringe hands. And I've not seen that. Like, that, it's that was, really hard to find. Yeah, well, people don't sell them. That was also a, yeah, a, right? the first of the JLC reversos to feature a factory Casa Fagliano strap. And it wasn't Fagliano designed. That original 100-piece run, that was a real Argentine Fagliano strap. That was that was the beginning of the demand and the craze for Casa Fagliano straps on reverso watches. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. It's impossible to find that US edition. It's impossible to find the, I want to say, 26 pieces in British Racing Green done for the British Boutique. Yep. That's hard, yeah. Uh, there are some really cool pieces out there that are super scarce. The, the Kuwaiti independence versions with the green dial, uh, turquoise, almost like a teal green. Uh, there is a yellow lacquered automatic, the King Ranma, uh, that was done for the Thai market. And then a limited run in blue lacquer uh, were done, I believe, in 2016. It was the automatic version again for uh, Rio de Janeiro. And yeah, there's some like micro runs of the Reverso out there that are super desirable, but no one ever sells them. It's like they only sell between collectors. They never get to pre-owned deal. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You're never going to see it on the sites because they've already gone. Um, I would say... The last piece I want to mention that I've been really looking at is the Omega Cosmic, mm. like triple calendar, and not just anyone. I'm looking for one with syringe hands. And anybody that knows that piece, 
again, a lot of those dials have perished because I believe a lot were, I don't know why, in South America and the humidity caused those dials to perish. And a lot have had the crown replaced. Even if you go back to Omega, they put a, a new modern one on it. It looks, it just looks really wrong because it's massive compared to the watch. So I want an original one. And yeah, I missed out on one like last two weeks. I'm really upset about it. Like it's good. I'm glad you're going after an Omega Cosmic and not like you know like a, a 105 12 pre moon. Like uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm glad you're going after an Omega that hasn't gone crazy yet. Uh, yeah. So just don't tell the world about it. You want me to delay the release of this podcast? <laughs> get yours? Well, I will say there's a lot of brands release triple calendars, and I think it's uh uh and the triple calendar I'm talking about is one with the date on the outside ring. That kind of design, I think VC, Vacheron did one, JLC did one. I think a lot of brands did it back in the time. It's not hard to find that kind of design. And I think it's a very underappreciated design. You know, it, it looks beautiful. What's on your shopping list, I guess? You're looking, you're going to get a Reverso eventually. You're going to get the Omega Cosmic. Um, you are still trying to decide between 5970s and 3970s. Yeah. Let me just ask you. As Isn't a that enough, Tim? No, what are you no, trying to do? Bankrupt I, me? I, I want you. I want you to commit to something. This is the real question that dwells in my mind because I can't answer it. What is a vintage watch? Where do we draw that line? Because you're a vintage guy. This isn't my expertise. I want to hear your perspective on this. What? Is well, I would say vintage. I think for most collectors would be like pre seventy. Okay. And I, and then there's like new this new term called neo vintage, right? Which seems to be represent like 80s and and the seven uh, 80s and the 90s, right? Which means the bulk of the 70s is in this <laughs> this this gray area, right? Um, that's what I would say. Which is why I said the 3970 not really classified as vintage. I A lot of people would say discontinued, but it's not really that's not really vintage, is it? You know. Yeah, I would give it credit as vintage because my you have a much different perspective on vintage than I do. I'm a pre-owned guy, which means most of the watches my company deals with are 20 years old or less. So from my perspective, I tried to come up with a definition that, that avoids naming specific years. So what I say is if the watch is substantially different from what the manufacturer is currently producing and is discontinued and is substantially different from what the market accommodates today. Like for example, a 35 millimeter men's watch. Um, if there's a real break in the type of watch accommodated by the market today and built by that manufacturer today, then I say you can sort of draw the line and say that vintage watches on a brand basis, like something with FP Journe, the watches made today are so different from the 38 millimeter brass caliber pieces made from 99 to 2004 mm. that you can say like a 2003 Journe watch is a vintage timepiece. And then if you- But what about like, I want to just go straight in there. What about the Speedmaster then? For, for me, I would say a vintage Speedmaster. Now, again, I talked about a vintage watch being something that's very different from what the market accommodates today, that either by design or technology or, 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 or size is just very different from current tastes. When you look back to the 1990s, you see moon watches that still have 
rose gold plating on the movements, yellow gold plating on the movements, tritium dials, uh, bracelets that feel like tinsel. Like for me, when I pick up a 1991 Moonwatch, it feels and looks like a vintage watch in ways that are non-trivial. The way it's built, the way the dial has aged and patinaed, the way the movement is laid out with, with finishes that are no longer used. And when I pick up a Rolex from the early 90s with the hollow end links, the perforated lugs, yeah, the stamped yeah. clasps, the tritium dials, okay. I, I look at that and I'm like, okay, this watch might be less than 30 years old, but to me, this is vintage because it's so different from today's watches on the market, like just conventions, like how a bracelet should be built. And it's so different from Rolex's own brand standards today. Something like this would not pass muster as a Rolex in the era of super cases um, and, you know, rock solid bracelets. So I consider that 1992 Yachtmaster or Sea Dweller or Sub to be a vintage watch, even though it's not 30 years old yet. Okay, that's very, that's a very clear classification in your mind, yeah. But uh, I will, I don't know. I wouldn't really say I'm a vintage expert. I think, you know, one of the friends I've been spending a lot of time with online is uh, a dose of time, Jacqueline, our mutual friend, and she's completely into vintage. And I think that's one factor. Second factor is mentioned before is the the fact I'm just not interested in the modern hype, and I want to. Uh, dissociate myself, differentiate myself amongst collectors as going for something which is this. And maybe finally as well, vintage has always been something that I've had a fear over, the last thing to, to kind of conquer, because I feel you need a lot of knowledge behind there. When we talk about, well, you know, because you're in the trade of what can be done, research styles, reloomed, you know, switching hands, case, cases, movements, uh, you know, redoing hallmarks, I mean, we haven't even got to box some papers yet. Oh. Um, like the amount of pitfalls are in there. You really need to have good, reliable sources. You know, I don't think, to be honest, the collectors are fully aware. You're never fully, fully, fully aware of uh, what you could be buying, yeah. right? I, I even the auction house can't really, you know, oh. when they talk about Rolex, they, you know, they don't really, they say it's period correct. They can't really say anything else. Rolex won't say it either. It's not like yeah. you can take your Paul Newman Daytona, send exactly. it to Rolex and get it authenticated. They don't even want to open that can of worms because they might be wrong. Like at the end of the day, older watches tend to be very simple. The process used to create 1960s watches was not all that different from things you can basically reproduce in a workshop at your house. So it's one thing if you've got a 2001 Ulysse Norden Freak and it's got a silicon escapement, double direct impulse and a central carousel tourbillon, that's not something you can fake. Like modern watches have a degree of quality and materials and engineering that you would need to be a gifted engineer in your own right with a factory to reproduce. But if you're just talking about making a replication of a Singer exotic dial to turn a 6239 into a Paul Newman 6239, there are lots of places that can do that. So vintage, <laughs> calling yourself a vintage expert to me, and you're very, very on point to say you don't want to be called an expert. The person who calls himself an expert is usually a victim waiting to happen because he's naive. It's impossible to know for sure. And most people I've met who really are vintage experts tend to be very deep and narrow into one model, um, like the Speedmasters. Yes. Just yeah. these Speedmasters. Yeah. Th yeah. Those are the experts there. I, I feel like when you go that deep in something you can't really spread yourself thin on a lot of brands 
it's got to be a specific brand. And then like you say, maybe even a, even a specific reference or a, a model that you really focus on because there's just too much to learn. If you're talking about um, money as well, because a lot of this is learned by spending money, <laughs> right? And getting hurt. Yeah. Um, it, if, you, if you invested in other brands, you just wouldn't have enough money. So uh, I think, but there's something that you said there, which I, it kind of goes on a tangent, but it's something that, again, I'm going to pawn off from another collector that told me called Mark Cho, um, who, who runs yeah, the Armory. Yeah. And you said that, you know, Rolex won't even verify whether, you know, this is original, blah, blah, blah. And Rolex is perhaps one of the most successful brands. And it happens in a time where a lot of um, watch brands are taking back the distribution, you know, especially with the advent of digital media, you know, they're uh, taking um, the distribution away from the ADs like AP. And, you know, that means also they control the narrative of what they want of that brand. And whether you have retailers, which, which is what Rolex is historically used, you get a different version of the same story. And that actually adds to the myth of Rolex. You know, it's the hearsay that makes it, right? Rather than this is the only way it's gonna be and that's the way you're gonna lap it up, right? I actually think that that's a good thing, right? Yeah, certainly, I think there is that, there's like a Rolex mystique that's created by always being like one degree <laughs> separate from the company. You're always dealing with the dealer, not Rolex itself. When you go into a Journe boutique or a Richemont brand boutique, you're talking directly to the company, but Rolex is always sort of this like ghostly presence in the background. You're talking to an AD, but you're not talking to Rolex BN or Rolex Geneva. That's a good point. I, I can see that. It's, it's a, it's a cult, right? True. It is a cult. It's that. And the funny thing is the cult has, has inducted members who are not part of the watch community. So um, on that front, brands that are very much inside baseball, like watch community brands, we talked a little bit about independence before. Yeah. And I'm curious, which independents are on your radar? Not necessarily for a purchase, but what do you admire? What, what catches your eye? Well, I have good relationships with the independents because I've worked with them um, in China. Um, and I love the team at Urwork. You know, they were first to uh, come into China and reach out to us, and they made the journey over to Shanghai. And having met their management and uh, Remy and Felix and uh, Martin, you know, I love what they're doing. I love how, you know, for 20 years and their production is still, num you know, still very, very low. I think it's like 150 pieces or something or 200 pieces, if that, where they think maybe they could have made more and the way they're trying to uh, mold that brand and not really compromising. I'll say that the watches are perhaps a little bit too big for me, not really my kind of uh, take. But if you see an artwork, it's impossible to go, oh, that's not wow. You know what I mean? If, yeah. if you see that and you're like, oh, I'm not really interested in that. And then if it's like, there's something wrong with you. Like you have to prove they have taken a complete tangent to traditional watchmaking and made something which feels very industrial, still feels very mechanical, but is in a way that maybe is more suited to today's uh, lifestyle kind of client where they're trying to make a statement of industrial mechanical even more so than just about the movement. Right, and actually completely purely in design. Yeah, and it's a good point 
they were among the first. People don't realize Erwerk first exhibited at Basel World in 1997. Felix Baumgartner at the time was the youngest ever inductee into the AHCI. And he and Martin Fry, who's the design half of the partnership, managed to do something that was dramatically different in terms of time displays without becoming mm. gimmicky or getting stuck in sort of a one note concert. Like they, there are some companies where you're like, well, you know, how far can they possibly stretch this? Companies like Oat Lantz that have a retrograde and a jump hour and every watch is just a variant on that or HYT. Yeah, I was gonna say that. Yeah. Every single watch, it's it's just the same, you know, time display gimmick. There have been yeah. many different Urwerk time displays over the years. They've kept it super fresh. And despite yeah. being one of the oldest independent, it seems like what they're doing is still avant-garde. It doesn't feel like they're yes. rehashing their greatest hits. Yeah. So I would say them. And then it's hard to talk about independence with re without really talking about MBNF. Yes. Um, like Max, bit of a, a genius, communication genius. Uh, the way he communicates that brand to the demographic, I think super powerful, super targeted, very relevant, love the designs. Uh, one of the most, you know, when I first saw those pieces in um, in GQ, actually, in England, in the magazine, I was like, whoa, what is this? Watches could be made like this. And, you know, independence pushed uh, generally the innovation in watches, pushed the boundaries, well, because they have to, really. Um, but then this is a brand that pushes the boundaries of those boundaries and what they do. And we talk about, uh, developing and not becoming stagnant. You've got a brand that, okay, started with the whole like spaceship, that whole space kind of vibe. Then I, I can see them going to this like more biological design, you know, with the bulldog, with the octopod, I think it was, um, those kind of designs. And then, you know, now, and then also the legacy machine. So they offer again, a variant of uh, products that, it's again, very hard to say, yeah, I don't really identify with that. Oh, I don't like that. You just got to appreciate and respect what they're doing. So I would put them really high. I would also say among um, traditional designs, uh, obviously Dufour, uh, Roger Smith, Recepi, Kari, and Grunefeld. Can't go wrong with any of those. I would yeah. even add, like, if you're into those, and this is for the broader audience as well, check out the Schwarz Etienne Roma Synergy, which yeah, is okay. like a three-way fusion of a Kerry Voudelainen watch, and that because he helped design it, uh, Philippe Dufour's Simplicity, because there are dial resemblances, and then Schwarz Etienne's best case at 39 millimeters with their ASC automatic micro-rotor movement, uh, ASC 200, really, really cool, really cool watch i'm making a note uh, of that that roma you know, talking to you doesn't help your bank balance does it geez no you're just adding adding stuff onto the list to research that that one that one you're going to look at it either as a really affordable voodoo or a budget destroying schwarz Etienne, but you're going to love it i think <laughs> <laughs> the thing the thing is kari that's it because i know he has to pay back the doll factory and the case factory yes. he's uh <laughs> done a lot of uh, he does the he did the dolls for the Grunfelds brothers, and also he was I think he was consultant for Urban Jagenson as well, right? So you do see those dials kind of a bit too much. I do think it detracts from his own brand a little bit. Uh, yeah, I mean Urban Jagenson again. If you want a probably more affordable 
Karivutalainen, that that is maybe there. Uh, I think that there is a really, you know, the Derek Pratt ones, yes. like they're really nice. Um, also, yeah, I think Kerry that classifies all good. Sorry, yeah, I was going to say also for Kerry fans, if you want to chart all the collaborations, another big one was Michael Dutomp in the chapter three with Andreas Striller. That's that's a great watch too. Hugely underrated. It's on no one's radar. Yeah, tell me that one again. I'm going to write it down. Maitre du Temple MDT Chapter 3. It is a very cool GMT with a moon phase that looks like a Voodlanen, but the engineering on the hidden complication is all Andreas Streller. So you get Carrie's case and dial design and finishing, and you get Streller's engineering. It's a very cool watch. It's also the only Maitre du Temple a normal wrist can wear because it's not huge. Right. I'm going to check those out. Yeah. But how about you? What about well, you? What do you think of the independence? And which oh, ones do you, do you like? Oh, you know, it's it's like, that's where I'd spend my money today. I wouldn't even bother at the big brands. Uh, John McGonigal's Oileen is a really cool watch that just came out this year. Uh, 40 millimeters in titanium. He's going to make eight of them. It's powered by a updated and highly customized Valjoux 88 vintage chronograph caliber. It is a chronograph triple calendar watch. Super gorgeous. Everything you'd want on you know, a Voodelain and Marco Long level of finishing. Uh, but it's, it's made in Ireland, so it's a little bit different. And it's a very nice size with a dial that's open, but not distracting and still easy to read. So McGonagall got my, my eye, but that, they're only making eight of those. Not a lot of production there. I'd also say Garrick of Norfolk, a British brand. Okay, yeah. Yeah. They're making about 50 watches a year, and they have the S1 through S3 models with movements designed with Andreas Streller. And then they have the S4, which still has their own movement based on a 6498, uh, but it's a more accessible watch price, just over $6,000 versus 33 grand for the others. So I think they're doing really fantastic things with a traditional take on British watchmaking in a wristwatch format. Rescence has always been, in my yeah, opinion, yeah. one of the best. You know, it's very difficult to redesign a time display in a way that's entirely original and readable. Like we've seen with the Genus watches, it's innovative in the technical sense, but it's almost unreadable in the practical sense. With, <laughs> with Resonance, it's easy to read type one, a type two, a type three, a type five diver. And for me, the type three with the oil fill is just about the perfect Resonance watch. Uh, and then finally, Debatun or Debatun. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, my God. You know, this is a company that only makes Grail watches. Debetun make 150 watches a year, and every single one of them should be on the cover of an auction catalog. They're that good. The engineering is the best in the business. The finishing, though extravagant, is very traditional. I think you probably get a watch with more patents per millimeter than any other brand except maybe Rolex and Swatch. So that is the best brand. De Betune for me is the best brand overall in the business. You can get one of those watches, you go for it. And I think someday they will be regarded the same way the likes of FP Journ would be regarded today. So I think that's going to happen. Yeah, actually, that's that one of those pieces on my, my list eventually, which is the DB28 steel wheels. Oh, yes. Yeah, I love that piece. And I think, uh, was it Revolution or the Rake? They did one with a blue kind of... Uh, I can't remember. I don't know what you call it, but it's like a V shape, but it's yeah. got a blue transparent sapphire glass on it. So you can still see the movement. That's pretty sick. Yeah. Every, and they do custom. That's the thing. There's some brands yes. that do not accommodate custom. Uh, De Betune does custom. 
I know that you can get custom work from Arnold and Son, which is probably the best brand no one ever talks about. Like De Betun is being discovered. Arnold and Son is like out in the wilderness. The quality of the watches, like I just saw an Arnold and Son CTB chronograph the other day, and I was looking at the finish and the way the case is assembled with welded lugs and the quality of the dial detail. And I'm just thinking, this is a company that's a real manufacturer with citizen watch money, world class finish, and they're only making 700 watches a year. And no one talks about them. Everything is Moser, everything is F.P. Jorn. And in that space, at that volume, I can't imagine why Arnold isn't discussed. I think it's just a marketing problem. Well, what do you think of Moser? I like them. I, I think it's important to recognize what they are and what they aren't. What they are is a very well-made and technically innovative German-Swiss watch brand making 1,500 watches a year with clever takes on Tourbillon and chronographs and perpetual calendars. Artisanal finish is not something they do in large volume. Some of the heritage models are heavily hand finished and enameled and engraved. But in terms of movement finish, they're not, they're not finishing at the level of, you know, a Vacheron or a Longuntina or a Laurent Ferrier. Uh, what they're doing is they're creating very neat mechanical finishing that I would say is more akin to what you'll find on an Audemars Piguet. So I like the watches and I do think they are fantastic pieces. The Endeavor Perpetual and Titanium would be my choice. So Moser watches are great. I think they appeal to people who want reliability, exclusivity, and technical innovation rather than people who want truly traditional styles or high horology finishing. So that's, that's kind of what I think of Moser. Great I, I think they're doing quite well. I think they've managed to get their marketing, I think, consistent. They've kind of owned that Fume dial design now. So even when AP decides to put a green dial on their, that new Royal Oak, everybody says all right it's the it's the it's the ap with the Moser dial right yeah. so to own that where if you see a dial like that you automatically think moser is no mean feat and they've made it so you know so minimalistic that all you can see is a dial so they've made the communication really pretty straightforward if this is your thing it's there second thing is if i own one you across the room can see it right yeah. see that i've got one which is actually quite important in the society we live in, you know, in that kind of price bracket and that kind of piece, if you want it to get more popular. So I think they've done really well there. Yeah. But before I move you on, before you go into the next topic, you mentioned this guy called Andreas Streller. Yes. Now this is someone that I'm not familiar with. So I'd love it if you educated me and, and the audience. Yes, he is an AHCI member who's probably best known for hiding complications. So making a watch that has two time zones, but has a clean aesthetic until you call on that second time zone, or also known for extraordinary perpetual calendar and moon phase durations. I, I think he might currently hold the record for the moon phase with the longest adjustment interval. He's also a contractor and he'll do custom by the way, his bespoke watches truly are bespoke. You ask for something he doesn't make, like say, I want a tourbillon Rattrapont and he'll design one from scratch if you've got the money to write the check. He also does a lot of work for other brands in terms of engineering, design, and fabrication. And he started, I believe, as a prototypist with Audemars Piguet, Renault Papi. So his job was mm -hmm. to create not just the prototype of a new watch, so he was a fabricator, but also the computer programs and the tooling dies and the industrial process to make the watches. So he's equally known for engineering and production engineering. 
as he is for actual watchmaking. He's, he's probably best described as a watchmaker's watchmaker. Uh, other than that, I, I would say, speaking of, of other topics, I would want you to make some recommendations. Like, I'm going to give you the last word on this podcast. I want you to make some recommendations based on new watches, old watches, simple watches, complicated watches, to a collector who is A, just getting started. Let's say he's got a budget of five grand. And, and then I would also like you to make some suggestions for a collector who is jaded and burned out by social media overexposure, what he can do to broaden his horizons and rediscover fun in collecting. I think that's a very good question and very fair. Um, so entry level or 5k newbie or someone getting into the hobby, I think, um, you can't actually go that far wrong with a Rolex. Now I know that sounds like such a cop out, but there's a reason why it's so successful. And the re if you come in, I don't know if you're ever going to actually go further in the journey and that might be your only watch. And that actually could fulfill, if you've got a, like an Explorer one, I think that does that fit? Yeah, that does fit into the just maybe right into that budget. Yeah, I think you get an Explorer one an Air King, maybe a really yeah. old Rolex date. That might be the only watch you need that would last you for the rest. Of, but if you're going, okay, I don't want a Rolex, which is quite, you know, understandable. That's what I did. Um, the next one could be a Speedmaster, the moon watch, the one with the Hezzelite dial. So the very basically the same incarnation minus the movement, which is still kind of very similar um, to the original moon watch. You've got, you're buying into history there. Plus it's a beautifully looking watch is a strap monster. So if you ever get tired and you want to maybe think about changing the strap to different, it will, it will work. Um, and also at the same for those people that don't know what it is kind of discreet. And I think it works amongst all circles. You take it to a watch gathering, no one's going to poo-poo a Speedmaster. Yeah. And if you take it to a start, it also works. So very flexible. I would say those are very obvious choices. So then I would look at, if you didn't want those, Tudor, Black Bay, Diver's Watch. So different from a Submariner. Again, a watch that works in all circles, very flexible, very good on straps with a bracelet as well for the, for the seasons. Great watch. Um, and like, it will take a beating as well. Um, and then Grand Seiko, okay. uh, GMT, um, underrated, beautiful dial finish. If you want to go dress watch, perfect size, I think, um, classically looking, I mean, I'm not a big fan of the, the, like, uh, the traditional case of a Grand Seiko, which is kind of like this cushion case, which goes around the, the actual glass and the cushion kind of case, not really into that, but I'm into these classic shapes, GMTs. I think they're, they're and they come in a myriad of uh, dial designs. I think they're beautiful. Um, yeah, I think something like that. I mean, you mentioned Zodiac, very, very affordable piece. I've seen, you know, they, they experiment with the bezel colors. I've seen some beautiful ones out there. But because of the experiment experimentation on those, maybe those dials aren't for every aren't, maybe bezel colors aren't for everybody. Also, not that easy to um, accessorize, perhaps. Um, so there, I think that probably rounds up my uh, entry level recommendations. And then for somebody that's jaded, well, I think you become jaded if you see 
you need to go off the beaten path, the well-worn path. And you're going to have to look at maybe stuff that you wouldn't normally look at. And basically that would mean brands that aren't as popular as the main brands out there. I'm a big fan of Alang and Cerner. Um, beautifully well, you know, arguably the best finished watches in a kind of a, a conglomerate. Um, and also low production number. So it's very exclusive. Uh, Langer One, very hard to go wrong with one of those. Uh, Zeitwerk, Datagraph, uh, 1815 Chrono. Um, and then, what? Well, oh, JLC. Uh, very much. Again, Reverso. Um, considering everybody knows a lot about Reversos, knows the story and everything, it's not a piece you really see that often um, amongst collectors. Well, I don't see see many wearing them um i think that's a piece to maybe go out oh actually back to elementary sorry i just uh, oris i think good oris is all good yeah call. oris 65 diver or the pointer date that one those two pieces they're just great pieces bang for your buck independent brand by the way um and there's not much to dislike about our like very approachable people, very approachable team. Very, you know, I've got an Oris, I've got the ProPilot X, love it. You just change that name on that dial and it would cost like three X more, right? Potentially. And I think uh, the 65 Diver, the one that Hadinki one, oh, I really like that one, <laughs> you know, with the like ghosted bezel, you know, they killed the date on it. Oh, that's nice. And manual as well, manual, manual wind movement. So, yeah, okay. So back to the jaded person. Mm, yeah. Indies, I think, takes a lot of courage. Yeah. I think you do gain an immense satisfaction of owning an indie that is very different to, oh, it's a very much internal personal satisfaction compared to one which is gained from validation from from your peers um you're definitely not going to get a piece that you're going to see that often you said debithun i think right now there's some good prices on those pieces they're worth going into uh Urwerk 100 that's kind of like a very entry level model for an Urwerk. i think it's relatively affordable as well very wearable, good size. It's, it's probably like one of the most wearable uh, works out there. Um, yeah, Grunfeld a few years ago would have been really invested, like really worth it. But now the prices are creeping up. I think they're getting appreciated. Um, but yeah, I think that's it. Uh, you could always go into vintage and look for these more affordable vintage models. Like I'm looking at Movado now. You know they're kind of undiscovered, but you know that that that's very personal choice if you want to go down that path because vintage always has a distinctive look. Very much. Well, thank you so much, Daniel. I really appreciate your time. Everyone out in cyberspace, be sure to check out the Waiting List podcast, and remember to check out the Talking Time with Tim Masso Facebook group where the conversation continues after the show. Time out, Tim out, Daniel out. Thanks for logging on. Thank you.